Hello and welcome to another episode of Checkpoint, the podcast highlighting and telling the stories of influential leaders in and around the sports industry. Today, we are excited to welcome our next guest, Eric Cusin, to the show. Eric is a seasoned professional and as a sports executive who had a roller coaster of a life, which led him to realize that we're all just a little bit crazy. Eric had an intense battle with mental illness, and at this point in his journey, he has made it his mission to change the narrative around the world, educate the masses in order for them to be able to ask for help when they need it. His nonprofit, We Are All Little Crazy, is geared towards raising awareness for mental illness and removing the stigma through the hashtag Same Here movement while providing resources and programming to ultimately generate a more informed and accepting global community. Eric, I couldn't think of a more appropriate time to bring you on the show with this crazy pandemic that we're all living through. Welcome to Checkpoint. How you doing today, my man? Good, man. I'm I'm excited based on the opening graphics that you had. That was a <laughs> that was a hey. pump up video that that led into the uh, introduction. We're getting there. We uh, slowly but surely we're we're becoming more official. So it's uh, it's been a fun journey. And and for all you first time listeners to Checkpoint, um, you know we're going to use the next forty five minutes um, to to go underneath the hood. Um, you know we're going to hear Eric's story of you know highs and lows, what he's currently working on right now, um, and where he sees the you know sports and mental Ill, mental illness, where he sees that intersection. You know over the next three to five years. So, so Eric, you know, we got a ton to unpack. Um, obviously, mental health and mental illness is at the forefront, um, you know, with Dak Prescott coming you know, public today. Let's dive in. What, give the listeners your story and, and how this became such a, a prominent piece of who you are as a human. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, it's fascinating in hearing your introduction and obviously you putting your own verbiage into it. Not surprisingly, and please take this the right way, like the term mental illness, mental illness, mental illness kept kept getting brought up, right? And I think fast forwarding to today and what we're dealing with with Skip Bayless and what he said about Dak Prescott's comments, if you look at Skip's justification for what he said, he said, well, I wasn't talking about clinical depression. I was talking about situational depression with Dak coming into the pandemic. And the problem is the term mental illness gets perpetuated too much as this global understanding of what mental health is. So I'm going to go into my story, but I just want to start with this as a reference point is that mental health is something that lives across a continuum. We all have our mental health impacted. There's not a person in this world whose mental health is 100% perfect. Just like there's not a person in this world whose physical health is 100% perfect. You eat a nacho from your from your family that they give you when you're three years old that's got cheese on it. Guess what? A little bit of plaque is building up in that artery of yours, right? Now yes, you've sir. gone from having this perfect biology, even if genetically you were perfect, to now you got a little bit of a strike against you, right? So this context of mental illness specifically, unfortunately, that's been perpetuated in society. And we, we, there's a lot of reasons we could explain why. Sorry, I got a little fly here. Um, is is it, it? It certainly helps certain industries create a thick line between the sick people and the healthy people. And if you're part of the sick group, there are certain things that you need to take in order to cure yourself or to get better. And so, I would be from from what I went through, which you'll hear my story in a second. I would be classified into that mental illness category based on what you'll hear my diagnosis would be. 
But the fascinating thing about mental health is the way that we classify folks is based on this model called the DSM-5, which is a subjective model. It, it, you can yeah, go yeah. into a doctor in one state. I could go to the doctor in another state. They could be from the same part of the world and studied in the same school, and we have the exact same symptoms. One person tells you you have one thing. Another person tells you I have something else, right? Or that you fit the criteria for having this diagnosis, whereas for me, I don't fit this criteria. You're just dealing with grade level, you know, uh, uh, typical uh, uh, life experiences that have tripped you up. Truth is, back to the name, we're all a little crazy. Um, we are all a little crazy, crazy in quotes. I don't want anyone to think I'm using that word in a literal sense, is that there's not a person in this world who doesn't face challenges that impact their mental health. And so how did that you know, perspective come about was, I'll try to tell it in a shorter version yeah, than I normally yeah. do, but you know, I worked in professional sports for 15 years. I'm I'm your typical like, you know, climbing the corporate ladder person, going moving team to team, the NBA to Chicago to Phoenix to New Jersey, then to, down to Miami, where my last position was with the Florida Panthers, and I'm this chief revenue officer at 34 years old, and things are going in the right direction for me. And then bam, six months into my tenure. There was a new ownership group that brought two of us down. There was CEO, Matt, who's still there, myself as a CRO. And it was like my brain and my body hit a wall and I fell apart. And it felt like it came out of nowhere. Now, looking back on it, as you'll learn in a second, it didn't come out of nowhere, but I was functioning at a high level at work. So because of that, I didn't see it coming. No one else saw it coming. When we're so focused on what we do every day that we're nose to the ground, and we enjoy what we do, take an athlete who enjoys playing the sport, take a sports executive who loves working in it, take an accountant, a lawyer, whatever, whoever is doing something where they're driven by something, they're every day, they're getting that hip, hit of dopamine saying, this is fun, this is fun, I'm gonna keep this going, I'm building towards this goal. And so oftentimes those of us who like what we do or get lost in what we do, we don't consider what else has gone on in our life what may be building up inside of us that we're not dealing with? And so uh, my, my, my hitting that wall, again, came out of nowhere. I, uh, the way it manifested was in things like not being able to get out of bed, not being able to put sentences together, uh, literally having conversations with people where the, their words just went across my eyes as if I couldn't focus on them and I couldn't understand what they were saying. Computers looked like light brights to me. And this was all over about a two two week span. So most folks from the outside weren't able to notice what I was going, going, uh, what was going on in my world. Cause I've got this office and I'm behind this office. I'm typing away at my desk. Right. Yep. And so yep. even though I'm usually interactive and I love bringing the staff together, people don't think too much of it. If, Oh, maybe Eric's got a really busy couple of days where he's putting reports together. The owners are asking for things. Right. So I'm sitting there behind my desk freaking out because this is not working. Even my body wasn't working. I, I remember typing where my left hand was was moving at the speed I'd like and my right hand was kind of lagging behind. And so this brain-body connection, there was something off with it. And my my ownership group was really, really uh, supportive. They, they have military background, West Point grads. And when I shared with them that something was going on and I didn't know if it was you know, either a brain tumor or a traumatic brain injury from playing sports when I was younger that was finally coming back to haunt me or this thing called mental health, which this happened to me at the beginning of 2015. So back then, you don't think we're talking about it enough now. We certainly didn't know anything about it then. Um, 
And, and so my, my owner was supportive. He said, take as much time as you need, one month, two months, three months, come back at the ground running. And when I heard three months, again, I think where everyone can relate is you, you your identity is tied in what you do every day. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, but in my case, unfortunately. And um, I thought saw it as I have three months to get back to being Eric, Eric, the sports executive. That's what I knew myself as. Wasn't married, didn't have kids. So I go home to New York, leaving my um, my apartment in Florida intact, thinking I'll be coming back there because what did I see on TV commercials? I saw, you know, a, a sad face that was a cartoon character for 15 seconds and sad music. And then all of a sudden a pill is introduced. And now all of a sudden it's a smiley face and there's blue skies, the clouds have gone away and the birds are chirping and everything's great. Yep. So off the heels of growing up and taking things like antibiotics for strep throat, bronchitis, pneumonia, and that working in two days, you could understand why people believe that a medication when it comes to mental health is a cure for you. So I went on this, you know, trial episode of, of, of multiple drugs. For those listening who've been through this process, I left my first doctor's appointment with, from what was called a psychopharmacologist. So it's someone who mixes even more meds together than a psychiatrist because they told me I had very severe symptoms and that I needed heavy artillery was the, was the terminology that was given to me. And, and I leave the doctor's office with five prescriptions. And what that led to was two and a half years of laying in a bed, horizontal, staring at the ceiling, what I call no original thoughts coming to my brain. So the things that we take for granted, waking up and saying, ah, I've got to do this today and I got to go pick this person up and I've got a meeting with that person. Nothing was in my brain. It was just staring at that ceiling. Didn't watch TV, didn't listen to the radio, didn't answer my friend's text messages. And I basically thought I was working by staying alive, pushing myself to keep getting through each day and waiting for this medication to kick in. And if not, rinse, wash, repeat, started all over again four or six weeks after the last one I tried. And so I did that for two and a half years straight. Question for you. Yeah. You know, because one of the things that we hear about so much um, along this journey um, is, you know, people keeping it to themselves. So I'm curious as you, you know, when you left Miami, you let your ownership team know, was there anybody in your family, a close friend that was going through this journey with you or were you internalizing all of this? You know what? The interesting thing is like with this concept of the stigma, it'll come around later on when we talk about, you know, why I formed the organization that I did. To me, stigma wasn't an issue. I'd tell whoever the hell could help me. Yep. Uh, I, uh, to, to be clear, and I don't mind admitting this, having the place in Florida, I couldn't pay for two rents. So I went back to the house I grew up in. I'm laying in a twin bed at six wow, foot four, wow. 240, where, you know, where, where I grew up in my parents' house. Thank God they had the means to be able to still house me there, right? And so they were supportive. My friends were supportive, even though I didn't really interact a ton with them. They were constantly checking in on me. And and what I what I say is the reason I didn't interact with people was not because I didn't want to or not because there was a stigma. I literally did not have the capacity. Like the way that I'm talking to you right now, I remind myself every day what a miracle it is that my brain comes up with thoughts that come through my mouth and that I'm able to say them. It wows me that that's the case because for so long that connection wasn't there. Wow. It, was, it was blunted, right? So blunted or stopped. I got it really stopped in its tracks. So I had all the support in the world, but no one knew how to help me. And you'll hear why no one knew how to help me. So people were there saying, I'm here for you, whatever you need. But no one knew where to bring me other than 
oh, you go to these doctors when there's mental health, these doctors give you medications, we got to find the right medication for you, right? That was yep. that was all anyone knew. So, so two and a half years of trying 50 plus medications, none of them working, then going and trying what a doctor recommended called TMS therapy, where they put a helmet on your head and shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain, trying to wake up the neurons. And that actually, unfortunately, after 23 sessions, 23 days straight in a row, led to my first ever concept of a suicidal ideation, where I'm on my bed after a night of not sleeping because this stuff was keeping me up from the, the zap that they were giving to my brain. And I, I, after not sleeping that night, I'm looking at a bottle of pills on my counter Good thing that it's National Suicide Awareness Month right now, and it was just World Suicide Awareness Day yesterday, because it's important to talk openly about suicide, is that my brain broke. My brain all of a sudden started going down a path of swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. Wow. wow. Unlike what most people think about suicide, I had nothing bad that had happened to me other than being in this position for the last two and a half years, but didn't have a breakup, didn't, hadn't just lost someone in my life, right? This was a buildup of something that then takes your thoughts that are your, you know, survival thoughts, food, shelter, water, and puts them in a different direction and plays that direction on repeat. It's why we lose people to jumping off bridges, why we lose people to sitting in front of trains. In my case, why I would have been lost had I not gotten help to swallowing this bottle of pills. It's an error message that your mind plays over and over and over again. So that stigma, again, doesn't scare me because I understand that's not a flaw in my character. It's not a weakness. This is a buildup of something we'll get to in a second, what had gone on in my childhood, that eventually got my brain to this point of, wow, like thoughts are going down this path instead. Yep. And so when I notice that path and I, I'm sitting on my hands, stopping myself from swallowing this bottle. I reached out to my parents who happened to be in the house and they took me to, you know, this is a scary term to say a psych ward. Right. And I voluntarily check in and the, I'm skipping a lot of details again, but my first meeting with the psychiatrist on the first day, the attending psychiatrist was looking at my chart, me looking at their wall with all their diplomas, believing this is the top practitioner in the Northeast. And the response being, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort is to do shock therapy. And so when I tell that story, people think that I'm referring to the shock therapy as what shocked me, no pun intended. Yeah, but yeah. what shocked me was hearing last resort. Like, wait a second. I know I've been trying stuff for two and a half years. But what do you mean last resort? And, and that's the way it was positioned to me. If I don't do shock therapy, I'm not going to get better. And shock therapy is a last ditch effort, kind of like if your computer goes to blue screen, you got to turn it off and hope that it turns back on again or else, you know, you're done. Yep. And yep. so I spent, you know, five weeks getting 12 sessions of what they call ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, where they put electrodes on your brain, they put you under general anesthesia, and they shock you uh, into seizure, hoping that kind of like that restart with the blue screen, your brain is going to restart. <laughs> your, your, your synapses are going to start firing the way that they used to. And not surprisingly, because there's no research behind the efficacy of it. Yeah. Question. Is this you know, for, for, for listeners out there that, you know, have similar lineage or have had a similar experience, uh, I've, I've dealt with this in my own capacity, but never to um, the magnitude that you, you went through in your journey. Um, is that a common practice that, you know, that takes place that we just don't hear about um, in society as frequently? Or is that like really the last resort? Well, w once we'll hear, you know, 
it should be the last, 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 last resort yes. because there's so many other ways to treat that I didn't know about at the time, right? Had I known that, I would never have gone down that path and taken that recommendation. That being said, is it happening? Absolutely. You go to psych wards all over the country, all over the world, and you know there's, there's movements to get shock therapy banned. Um, but the reason why shock therapy is so controversial is there's no data in, it, rooted in science showing why it works. It's, it's an anecdotal um, process that there were uh, epileptic patients that they were trying to reverse their own seizures on. So the thought was if they induce a seizure on them, it will stop their normally occurring seizures from happening when they're awake. And that didn't work. But again, anecdotally, some of those patients who claimed to have felt depressed before, which when those tests were performed, <laughs> we don't already don't know what the real factors of depression are right now. For someone to say they knew what depression was back then, we're talking 30, 40 years ago. No, there was there was no way of telling. And so these people, I, I'm feeling better now, right? So, okay, I guess this is a last ditch effort. And that was shared with me when I asked about it when 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 it was first recommended to me. So, I, you know, you, when you hear last you know last resort, and you're hearing it from experts, even though it sounds crazy right now to looking back on it, saying you did it, when you don't believe there's anything else you can try you listen to what the experts say, right? Yep. Um, and so so 12 sessions, and I leave the hospital after the 12 sessions, those five weeks, feeling no better than I had the, the, the two and a half years prior. So I'm figuring my life is over. And I go to uh, go back to that bed that, that I, I was in, retreat there. And now my parents are, are retired educators. So they go to these continuing education courses. And one of the courses their friends took them to just randomly, uh, at the time was called integrative breathing practices. And I didn't know what the term integrative meant and I had never done a breathing practice in my life. So I, I didn't think much of it when they went to the class, but they came back from the class and my mom runs up to my room and says, you gotta meet this woman, Donna. She's amazing. She treats people differently than what you've been treated before. Maybe she can help you. You gotta go try her. So I go and meet with this woman three days later and I sit on her couch and she's the first practitioner in two and a half years who instead of her first question being, Eric, what are your symptoms? Okay, based on your symptoms, here's how we can treat you and get you better. Her first question was, Eric, can you tell me about your life? Which is obviously a very broad, open question where you can take it in many directions. And she wasn't trying to like hone in on, let's start with your parents. What's the relationship with your parents, right? It was nothing like that, it was very open-ended. And so my background is what I just started sharing, in the middle of three boys, we're a sports crazed family, Okay, you're the middle of three boys. Tell me about your older brother. And then from there, it just started rolling out of me is that from the time I was eight and he was 12, the rest of the next 20 years looked like this. He, he broke his femur bone in a sporting accident, was put in traction, and then a body cast for a year and homeschooled. Heals from that and a month later gets diagnosed with ALL, children's form of leukemia. So has five years of chemo and radiation because back then it takes a much longer amount of time to knock the cancer out of your system. The chemo drugs weren't as strong or as well targeted. Uh, after going into remission, he a month later is in a, a Jeep Wrangler that his friend had just bought, used car, open top, open back. He's got his permit. They're going on Islander game. Car loses control. My brother's in the back seat with no seatbelt. Flies out of the back, lands on his head, cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eye, is in ICU for a month. Heals from that, goes to college between junior and senior year. 
he's feeling a pain in his knee, he gets all these tests done, the blood tests come back, uh, determining that his cancer has returned from childhood. So now they have to give him a much stronger chemo regimen. Uh, the drugs are much stronger now, 10 years later. And I'm up at college now. We switch places. He's going to, uh, he's actually living at home, going to law school at Hofstra. And um, I get a call from my father saying that from the chemo treatments, he's developed 105 fever. They're bringing him to the hospital. They bring him in and his body goes into what's called septic shock, where your organs start attacking themselves and he falls into a coma. So by the time I get back to New York, he's in that coma. And now he stays in that coma with a tube breathing for him, us just watching the bed essentially for three months. And we have no idea from the neurologist whether he's going to wake, whether he's going to have any brain activity if he does wake, what level of you know interaction with us he'll be able to have. But again, miracle, right? He wakes and he's got his full faculties about him. So you're feeling like you're in the clear. Well, his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock and um, he needs to go on dialysis. Then we all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is. My father donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I start my career at the NBA shortly after that. And early on in my career at the NBA, within the same year, three of my close friends pass away unexpectedly from heart conditions. Like, how does that happen to 20-year-olds, right? One guy running on a treadmill just collapsed. And so... So when I shared that story with Donna, what she said back to me was, Eric, is there anything else that's happened in your childhood, your young adolescence that, that, that you want to share with me? And my reaction was not trying to be facetious, but it was like cerebrally it was what I thought. What do you mean happened to me? These things didn't happen to me. They happened to my brother. They happened to my friends. Uh, and so she kind of took a deep breath and she said, you know, Eric, let me explain to you. You had this front row seat, like you're a sports executive. So I'll explain it to you in that terms. And, and if you have a front row seat and instead of it being a basketball game, let's say it's a wrestling match and your brother's in a wrestling match fighting for his life, every move he's making, and it's a muddy wrestling match. And since you're in the front row, mud is splashing and hitting your suit, hitting your tie, and it's caking up on you. And every time your friends who are dealing with their, what they're dealing with, they're fighting for their life. They're in a muddy wrestling match right next to your brother. And that mud is hitting you and it's hitting you. Eventually that mud cakes up on you and it dries, you didn't know to get up and take a shower because you're just sitting front row seat for this game of life. Unlike a basketball game where you get up when the game is over, life just continues to happen. And if you don't do anything about it, it just keeps building. Yeah. And that's that was my first foray into learning about the science of stress and trauma. That's what that mud represented. And stress and trauma build on our system and our central nervous system and our body much like plaque from a physical health standpoint builds in our arteries. Over time, it continues to build and build in a cumulative way. And so essentially, the reason why I collapsed and hit that wall the way that I did when I was 34, 35 years old is because all this stuff had built up throughout the early part of my life that I was so focused on sports and playing sports and working in sports, I didn't have time to focus on those other things. And I didn't think that they mattered. They, right? Like who tells you that these things build up inside you until you eventually get to a point where it's like so much is built up, bam, right? Or you want to look at the opposite way. Pieces have been taken out of the bottom of your Jenga tower over and over and over again. Eventually one more piece gets taken out, the tower topples over. And so I go, she, she sends me to, to learn how to breathe properly. Like that's what she's told me would help me heal. And I didn't believe that, but you know, you, you, you listen to, to trying something else after you've, been told you've tried your your last resorts 
And so I show up to this class that she sends me, and I'm the only man, only one under 40, and only one born in this country. So it's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. And what I learned in that class for three days was incredible. And, and it, I wouldn't say it's what their focus was, but it was what my focus was, is I love learning the science behind why things work. And essentially, the best way I could describe it to people is it, when we see things from the outside world that impact us, if a car crashed through your wall right now and, and, and lost control and you looked at that car, you'd go <gasps> and you, 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 you'd stop breathing the right way, right? So it makes sense then as things affect us from the outside world as we're watching them, the way that we breathe changes because we're now impacted by these events. And if the way that we breathe changes, now the biology in our body changes. A nerve in our neck called the vagus nerve starts to tighten up, right? Inflammation starts to form in our body. Our hormones aren't secreted in the same way. Our immune system gets affected. And so if all those things are happening just by the way that we're reacting to the stimuli around us and that changing our breathing, well, guess what? Breath work can be such a healing practice, right? Because now we can normalize that breath work, which now normalizes the biology in our system to say, everything's all right. Just because you felt so many things when you were younger and you saw so many things happening, that doesn't mean that every day of your life is going to be this train wreck that you experienced when you were younger, where the next shoe kept dropping and kept dropping. And you, you take that into real life, right? It, my story might sound extreme, but you have, let's use like individual cases. A 30 to 40-year-old man or woman has a parent who's got cancer. Well, that 30 to 40-year-old woman every day at work and when they come home, in the back of their mind is thinking, am I going to get a call that my, my parent became stage four and that they're becoming terminal and that they're going into hospice? Let's take that same 30 or 40-year-old man or woman. They have a child in school. The child's getting bullied. And every time that, that 30 or 40-year-old's going to work or coming home, they're thinking, is my child getting bullied more today? Are they crying? Are they going to self-harm? Are they going to do worse than self-harm and, and, and try and cause harm to themselves in a, in a major way, right? So we all deal with these events in life. Yep. Job losses, breakups, divorces, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, right? The list is a mile long, and there's not a person in this world who hasn't experienced some or many of those things, right? Look at what Dak Prescott talking about current events. He lost his mother on top of losing his brother, right? But Skip Bayless will tell you that's not clinical depression. Well, yes, it is. Yeah. That's why I'm talking about this continuum. Situational things that happen to us absolutely build up in our system and they manifest into things like disorder. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't to that level. But why are we making a differentiation between thinking that someone is born clinically depressed versus someone deals with a ton of shit in their life and the buildup of that brings them to a place of major depression, right? Yep. Question, so, question for you, real quick before yeah. we move on. Um, just for, you know, this this really resonates with me. It resonates with my journey, my family, you know, and, and so, you know, if it hits me, just another person, then this is impacting and resonating with all of our listeners. And, and I'm curious because you do enjoy the science, right? Not just the outcome, but the process to get there. Um, as you went through this journey, did you start to understand why holistic measures were not taught here stateside um, in, in Western medicine like we see um, in India or, you know, some of the, you know, Tibetan cultures um, where it's more holistic driven, more connected with the earth? Did you get to that root cause or am I jumping ahead here? 
Well, you're jumping ahead, but it's a great question to ask because it'll eventually get there. The answer is, as, as, as you'll come to find out, is what are we taught here? I, I talked about the commercials that we saw, right? So we believe we have modern technology here and we have the best antidotes towards things and, and, and that our you know pharmaceutical companies put together the best combinations of magic pills that, that anyone else has in the world. We don't need to do that foofy stuff, right? That breathing and that meditation stuff. That's what we believe, right? And 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 the the messages perpetuate that, right? Um, but but I, I'm going and I'm learning this breathing practice. I do it for three days. I don't feel better. Not surprisingly, what's who's going to get better in three days? Although you're you're impatient, but I do it for thirty days in a row, and I have an accountability partner. And I wake up one morning and I, and, and I share with you. I looked at the TV for the first time, and it was like, holy shit! I wanted to turn the TV on, and I looked at the kitchen. And I said, I want to have scrambled eggs for breakfast. And just the realization of a desire for something was such a miracle to me because I hadn't had those drives or interests for two and a half years that it felt so good to feel something. And wow. so, you know, that, that started to cement to me this, the, the, the natural ways to heal and that our body wants to find ways to heal. And these things that I wouldn't have listened to before thought were, were actually, you know, beneficial. I'm now buying into, right? So this, okay, the breathing practice works for me. I'm not back to myself totally, but I'm back to myself enough where, okay, cognitively I'm thinking now. And I'm like, this is before the Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan era of sharing their stories. This was August. No, it was June of 2017. Kevin came out with his story in September. So at this point, I have no idea how to share my story. I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have Twitter. So I had LinkedIn, which is where a lot of sports executives, as you know, connect. And so I write in much greater detail than what I just shared here, my whole story. And I share the gory details because again, stigma wasn't the thing for me. It was more a lack of understanding of how the hell did my brain get like this? And I shared like feeling this thing called agoraphobia, not being able to leave the house and anhedonia, feeling a complete flat line of emotion. And you know, I wanted people to understand what the feelings are like when you're in this, not just the, here's my disorder label, which by the way, I was labeled with PTSD from, from what I had as a child, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I share the story three days on on uh, LinkedIn. It gets read 150,000 times. But the bigger thing was I get over 400 calls coming in because I put my telephone number at the top from as far as China. And I know it's 400 because I was tracking in an Excel spreadsheet and just erasing the mailbox so I could keep getting more in. And what I was hearing on these calls was there wasn't a single person bringing up a disorder label. No one was saying, Eric, I have depression, or I have PTSD, or I have... Everyone was sharing with me a life experience story. I lost a child to SIDS five years ago, or I was, I'm married to a great husband, two beautiful kids, white picket fence, but I broke up with my college boyfriend 10 years ago after dating him for four years, and I've woken up with a pit in my stomach every day wondering if that was the right decision, even though the woman's married and it has, has a perfect, happy life, right? And what, what I gleaned from that was whether it's life events that happen to us, like the loss of a child, or it's things that we choose, but we obsess and perseverate over the decisions that we made, this stress and trauma that builds happens from many different sources in our life making it so that we all exist across this mental health continuum. Because again, there's not a person in this world who doesn't experience 
these traumatic life events, these stressful life events, and these difficult life decisions that we make. And when we don't learn how to deal with them, they impact us. So I go to all these nonprofit websites in our country. You know, I won't name them, but 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 people know what they are. They're the largest nonprofits in the space. And, I, and, and, and it's nothing against their programming because I think they do amazing programming, but the problem is the marketing message. This gets back to your question, when did I buy into like holistic? Well, you go to all these websites, here are the three things I noticed on all the websites and I'll add a fourth because, because of the question that you asked. The three things are one, that they all start with the stat, one in five people are mentally ill. That's trying to make us seem like there's a lot of people, that's 43.8 million people. They're not seeing the flip side of that, which is that they're also telling four out of five people, 80% of the population, you're healthy, normal, fine, and okay. So Skip Bayless would have put Dak Prescott in the healthy, normal, fine, okay category. Yeah, you just dealt with the passing of your mom and brother. No big deal. You don't have this thing called mental illness, this clinical depression, right? Bunch of BS, excuse my language, but, they, yeah. but it is. Second thing was the campaigns were all mirror images of each other. They were an action word followed by stigma. Stop the stigma, stop the stigma, race the stigma, break the stigma. What we're saying by saying stop or stop the stigma is we're telling a group of people in society, you are forming an opinion, a judgment, making a decision about another group of people. You need to stop doing that. It sounds rah-rah and like we're all in it together. It's not. When you internalize what the term stigma means to so the people who are not part of this woke mental health movement, they're internalizing that message and saying, the finger is getting pointed at me or my friend or my mother or my brother, that we're the ones who are stigmatizing that group and that we need to stop. And while that might even be true, do you get people to stop their actions based on saying stop? <laughs> like if you and I went into a schoolyard and said, hey, bully, stop being a bully, that bully would probably come in the next day after we're no longer there and be like, Let's pick on this kid even more, right? Correct. So, so you had this issue of you're putting people into binary categories, the people stigmatizing and the people being stigmatized. And then the final piece was all these celebrities, the way that they were uh, uh, sharing the stories of celebrities who had this quote, back to what you brought at the beginning, mental illness. The, the nonprofits were happy. They're like, Britney Spears has depression too. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety too. Okay, but the, the way that the stories were being shared were through the tabloid media. So it was this formula of the celebrity name plus only the disorder name, no other story about how they got there, and then this erratic behavior that they're engaging in. Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety. She dresses like a hot mess. Charlie Sheen has addiction. He looks like a skeleton right now when he leaves his house, right? And let's look at modern day. You know, uh, uh, Kanye West has bipolar, talks crazy things about his family. Kevin Love has anxiety, runs off the basketball court in panic attacks. Well, combine those three things together now. It's only one in five people. We need to stop stigmatizing them in that group. And the them looks like these celebrities who shave their head, run off of basketball courts, and dress like hot messes. Okay, I understand now that that's not a topic for me. Skip Bayless says, that's not Dak Prescott. That's those other crazy people like Britney Spears. And now we have this ridiculous segmentation in society that actually doesn't exist, right? Wow. And so, and that, by the way, that's not to downplay people who have major mental illness for which I would fall in that category, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. As someone with PTSD, I would fall in that category, but we're taking a subjective measure. No one can measure psychological pain. And we're saying these people are more affected and these people are not affected at all. That's not true. It's a, it's being affected across this continuum, right? And so 
Back to the fourth piece now, if you go in on any of those websites, you could still do it to this day, 2020. If you look at how to get better, it says pharmaceuticals and then talk therapy. It, it, and it says, there's a line in most of them that says, there's some evidence that other alternative practices may be beneficial to your mental health, right? Compare that to now what we talk about, which is we call them STAR exercises, stress and trauma, active release and rewiring which is doing things like what I learned with breathing, but then went on this odyssey around the world trying to learn these different practices. I went to Jakarta, Indonesia to learn Qigong meditation. I went to uh, meet with the founder of uh, a, a process called Havening, where you literally, through your own self-touch, as weird as that sounds, you're rewiring traumatic events that have happened in your system in a soothing way. The, met with this guy who's the founder of TRE, trauma release exercises, where animals out in the wild, when they're chased by a prey, they tremble after they get escape from that animal because so much stress and trauma is built up from the chase. The way their system knows to get rid of that stress and trauma is to tremble. Well, guess what? Humans have the ability to trigger that tremor response, but we don't do it because we don't know about it, right? But you can mirror what animals do out in the wild. So there's all these holistic practices that are out there that are essentially, if I really need to explain the simplest way to people is you have a pot, right? And that pot is your central nervous system. And that pot starts to fill with water. You don't want that pot to boil over because you don't want to fall over the way that I did. So you want to create holes in the bottom of that pot so the water keeps draining out because the stress and trauma, which is the water, is going to keep pouring into the top because life keeps happening. So you need to do something to have a release valve out of the bottom. That's where these practices come in, and that's why they work. Stress and trauma, active release and rewiring is you're allowing more and more holes in the bottom of that pot so that as water comes in, the water level isn't continuing to grow, and you're not getting to the point where I did, where disorder starts to set in. You're allowing yourself actually to heal and allow that water line to go down. What? Man, I, I, I am speechless. I mean, I, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this introspectively. I, I talk to people about it because stigma is not a thing for me. Um, I think the way that you just articulated that was, um, it was almost tangible, Eric. I could almost touch that example. I, I felt that growing up. Um, you feel the divisiveness, like that's not me, right? So I can't be sick. And, and um, you know, to, to share a couple personal things on my side to, to you know, for some reciprocity, um, you know, all the listeners don't know this, but I went through a, a, a near death experience. I mean, I was stuck to the bottom of a jacuzzi. Um, I created a vacuum between my stomach and the pump and, and I was dead on the bottom of the, the hot tub. And, and my dad was a firefighter paramedic. He was a bodybuilder at the time. He ripped me off and, and, you know, it was this act of heroics, right? You know, it was the best thing since sliced bread. Scott is alive. Sandy saved him. And as we go through this journey of life, I don't think my father ever had the ability to cope with that, right? He never had the tools and it was very taboo from generation to generation. And, and so, you know, although I don't agree with someone like Skip Bayless, you know, that that's what they were taught. That was a learned behavior of that generation. And so, um, you know, it's really interesting. And, and the analogy that my father would always use was, Scott, if I, if I went and cut my leg open right now, you would see that I have a gash at an artery and you would take me to the hospital and do everything you can to stop it. And I'm like, yeah, dad, I get that. I get that. But he's like, 
you can't see what I'm dealing with right now. And I can't explain it, but I need you to trust me. And the behavior drove me further away and further away only to take a step back, Eric, and look in the mirror and say, this human that I put on a pedestal that saved my, would he be lying to me about this? Would he, would he be fabricating this story? And, and, you know, when you, you explain it like that, it's just another nail in the coffin of like, holy shit, this is happening to people that you care about that you, that are in your life acutely. And, and you're so caught up in your own that you don't always recognize it. And I think that, um, man, you hit a, you hit a, nerve with me this was uh you know it's it's very apropos and and and, well, your, and your dad your dad's a great like your dad's a first responder right so yeah. your dad experienced the trauma of saving you off of the bottom of the hot tub right where the where the vacuum was now take that and extrapolate that okay there's many people who see their loved one cross underneath a car or watch their loved one get in an accident or, um, you know, uh, a watch a loved one go through a heart attack, right? We hear stories like that. Not everyone, that's some. Yep. But the reason I bring up your, your father as a first responder is it's a perfect case in point that your father's not only dealing with his own traumas of what he lived with in his personal life with you, your father as a first responder is showing up every time there's something going on in the town, right? And that's what they call vicarious trauma, where you're living through it through other people. Not so dissimilar to what I talked about with me and my brother and my friends is that I might not have been the one in the car. Like in your in your father's case, he was the one dragging you out right from that vacuum. So he yeah. actually lived it. But when he's watching other people who aren't in his family, but a mother is hysterically crying because her son or daughter is burning in a building or he has to show up to a crime scene. Or, or an accident scene, and there's a body laying on the floor, as, as, as graphic as that sounds, and there's family members screeching in the background, if you're even the slightest empathetic person, those traumas also impact you. So what your father has dealt with is that pot, in terms of the water line going up, he's having even more water go in the top, because on top of his own stuff, he's experiencing things from other people. So what I... I want everyone to, to, to viscerally be able to understand is look at what happened with Kobe Bryant when he died and how many people were affected from that. And what, 99.9% .9 of the people who were really, really saddened by Kobe's loss had never met him before? That's because we, again, have this connection to people in this world. And when we lose people or tragic things happen or there's news stories or events where we felt connected to people. I've heard it recently with Regis passing away. We obviously heard it when, when um, Robin Williams passed away. You know, and, and there's countless examples of this is you don't need to be the one in the seat as the car accident happens. All you need to be is watching it. 9-11 again today. Yes, I was in New York when that happened and the buildings were right down the street from me and I'm watching this happen. And yes, that affected me in a big way. But I've heard stories from people who lived in Minnesota, Mississippi, all the way in, in other countries across the pond who watched that on TV in front of them, saw a huge 100-story building collapse and then another huge 100-story building collapse and realizing how many lives were in that building, guess what? That is trauma. That's pouring water in there. So for anyone out there who thinks they're immune to this, you're not, unfortunately. I don't mean that to be mean. I mean that to be real. 
and to wake people up to that's how we fluctuate up and down on that continuum is that water line is filling for all of us, whether we like it or not. Well, and, and, and you bring up a great point there. And, and what's really interesting as technology progresses, um, it's more in your face. It's more accessible than ever before. Right. And, and, you know, if you think 30, 40 years ago, it was really easy to shut the door or put the newspaper down and Hey, I got my own sanctuary in my house and these are my walls, my problems. Screw you world. Now you wake up. It's the first thing you see. You go to bed. It's the last thing you see. And so I'm curious. Think about kids. Think about kids. Like, so compare our growing up. Like, so one of the first major tragedies I remember is the space shutter, shuttle Challenger blowing up, right? I was in first grade, I think, at the time. That might be a little bit too, too early for you, right? But we weren't watching it on our phones. Our teachers were hearing it from their friends. And then they got us all together in a room. We never saw it in real life, meaning meaning in real time happening. So we we come to find out after the fact. Persian Gulf War, the, the networks are sending grainy footage of um, rockets, you know, going over and exploding in what seems like a land so far away that it looks like Mars, right? Okay, compare that to what kids are seeing now. I'm on my cell phone. Wait a second. I could see the face of a child being gassed in Syria? Oh, my God. I... I'm looking at what's happening in Vegas and I'm seeing all the people having to scatter with the shooter coming out of the building and shooting at people. So yes, the trauma that people are seeing and that they're living through is not only trauma that they're actually seeing in person. When they see it in these things, it it feels very real and, and, and you understand why it feels very real. So unfortunately, we're living in an era where technology is great. But aside from all the comparison things people talk about with social media and all that stuff, just the mere access to the news that we have creates more and more of that water filling into that bucket. Man, I got to tell you, I, uh, you know, so so last year, uh, me and my now wife, we, we stepped out on a journey and, and, you know, the American dream was sold to you, right? We were both athletes on paper, Eric, we were doing it. And, and we looked at each other and, and we had both traveled, we had both, you know, done these uh, you know, things growing up, but we're like, let's shake it up. There's got to be more to this. And, and so we went on a 20,000 mile road trip. We went completely off the grid. We turned our phones off. And, and you know, what's interesting is uh, when you come in the business world, when you come into any really you know profession, what defines success, right? And everyone has like that magic you know, money or how materialistic driven things. And, and, and it was one of the epiphanies that we had that we define success in a very reactionary model here. I have student loans. I have a mortgage. I have a family that I need to support. And so we find ourselves defining it that way. And when we were out on the road, it gave us a chance to sort of just be where our feet were, no distractions, and just be one with nature. As hokey pokey as that sounds, you go into the Grand Canyon and have a Sioux Falls. You go into Crater Lake and you realize that we're the cancer here. This thing is so much bigger than us. And so for every advancement that technology brings us, there's a reciprocal effect of it that, hey, we have to start to understand what that looks like, what that feels like. And um, I think COVID is really exposing that, right? We're seeing suicide rates at the highest we've ever seen them or highest in the last 30 years. We're seeing, you know, this traditional framework come undone. And so I'm curious, you know, that you've been on this journey now 
Um, do you see more of the taboo being broken and some of these holistic practices starting to penetrate the states or do we have a long way to go there? Um, really curious your, your thoughts on that. I mean, look, I, I'm being obviously in my own lane of what I see. Unfortunately, I don't see things getting better, which is why we're working so hard to build and build and build. Uh, and and maybe this is a, a a selfish way to look at it, right? But I'll I'll use some some very specific examples. Okay, you have doctors, you have holistic practitioners that there's a stigma to where they come from and what they're teaching. That the Western society looks at that and says. Again, what are you selling me? What's that snake oil stuff, right? So who's the message coming from? What's the name of the messaging? It's why I share that we call it STAR. I don't call it holistic, functional, Eastern, or, or alternative. Although the practices include all those things, that's the first thing that people turn away from. So you want to talk about real stigma. People are you know, stigmatized against the things that work, unfortunately, right? So, so that's one issue. The other issue is our media loves to stir the pot. And, and, and we also have, got to be careful with how I say this, we've got people with platforms who, because mental health is a big topic right now, it's very hard to parcel out who's doing stuff because they care about people and they want them to get better versus who's doing stuff because it sells more records, gets them more endorsement deals, and gets them speaking engagements after their career is over. So I won't talk about the second category. I'll talk about the first category and give examples so that people can recognize it. Hayden Hurst, who we work with, first round pick for the Baltimore Ravens, just got traded to the Atlanta Falcons, will be Matt uh, Ryan's key target as a tight end. The guy is in his third year. He's got everything to lose, and he's sharing about his experiences dealing with suicidal ideations, how he had a suicide attempt, but more importantly, sharing the stories about the shit that's happened to him in life that led to those feelings that he had. He's not doing this for endorsements. <laughs> He's yeah, doing this yeah. because it helps other people. If he was doing it for endorsements, he couldn't possibly make up in endorsements what he has the risk of losing by being open about this for fear that general managers won't sign him the contracts thinking he's this, quote, crazy person, right? Another example, Robin Leonard in the NHL. He wears our same here hashtag on his helmet. Like we're, we're, we're obviously so thrilled about that and he's become a good friend, but he's played lights out the last three years. But because he came out that he was struggling with bipolar, no one signed him to more than a one-year deal at a time. How's that possible? The guy's got top 10 stats in the league. Well, it's because they think that he's a bigger risk than the guy who tore his ACL and had reconstructive surgery. How is that possible? It's not possible. If you look at it in its real sense, Robin didn't know how to deal with what his mental health challenges were, which came from stuff from when he was a child. So he drank and he did, did drugs. He did that while his career was happening. He, that was the only way he knew how to try to get the feelings away so that he could perform. He then went to a substance abuse program. He learned the tools that helped him get out of it. He's been a model citizen ever since. His teammates love him. And he's been walking on the straight and narrow. He doesn't have a drink. And yet no one's taking a chance on him, right? So these guys are openly talking about it. Women like Amani McGee Stafford in the WNBA, right? People who are current athletes, Liz Cambridge in the WNBA, current athletes that are talking about it. Now, obviously, Dak Prescott, of course, it's easier when, you, when, you, when you're a little bit later in your career and you have a long-term contract. But that even being said, you know, like 
in football, you could get released at any point, right? Only part of your contract is guaranteed. So I give Dak a ton of credit for, for sharing and talking about it, but that's how people can know that there's a difference. So where this now ties back to your question is, unfortunately, because there are those who like to perpetuate name and disorder, name and disorder, you hear about this particular athlete or this particular celebrity, and they have anxiety. They have PTSD. They have depression. Okay. What happened in their life? What's their life story? What's their challenge event that led to these things so that we as individuals can relate to them? Because when you're just throwing a label out there, the 80% that don't like hearing labels, they're not listening to your story and you're just creating a further divide. So if that answers your question in terms of why our suicide rates are still high, why our mental health rates, unfortunately, are still high in schools, especially right now, coming back from COVID, it's because we're not solving it in terms of the holistic practices yet and explaining it to people. And we're not solving it in terms of the, the messages from a math standpoint. And the hope with same here is as, as it continues to grow, you got enough people saying here every time there's another story of another person sharing their mental health, people see it as part of a movement and a narrative as opposed to these one-offs of look at that other crazy person. Okay, next, throw them under the bus. Let's find the next crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I, I tell you, this is uh, since we connected for the first time, um, I must have told every, you know, every person I talked to that, hey, fuck it. We're all a little crazy. Okay. Like quotations, we're all, we all have that story. And if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say you don't, you're lying to yourself. Right. And so, you know, I'm a big Michael Jackson fan and it all starts with the man or the woman in the mirror. And, and when you're able to introspectively start, you know, looking and asking yourself those hard questions and being honest with yourself. Um, the, the output is Eric, this, the last hour we've been on, you have been unapologetically yourself. And it was maybe one of the best compliments that I was ever paid where it was like, come hell or high water. If it's Nick Saban or just a random, you know, friend on the street, you're just a person. And, and I think we, we have all these divisive measures that are in place because they do drive revenue. And, and I'm really excited to see what capitalism looks like outside of this crony deal that we've inherited, right? The more pure form. Um, I don't know what that looks like on the horizon with technology, um, but I'm sure as hell glad there's folks like yourself telling the story, giving people hope to say like, you know what? It's okay to be a little crazy. So I'm going to use that to, to go forward facing. You know, we talked a little bit about same here um, and what you guys are doing. I'd love for you to talk about, you know, the, the celebrity initiative you have, the CEO initiative, um, so that listeners can start to participate and interact and get behind something so great. Thank you. So the, the concept from the beginning was always, this has to be alliance-based. And, and why is that is because I looked at the, the timing of when I came out with my story was shortly after Prince Harry had shared his story. And Prince Harry is a bigger celebrity in the UK than no disrespect to any of our athletes here than let's say even LeBron James here is in the US, okay? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Commonwealth countries uh, love, love the Royals, right? And, and even with all the controversy maybe that's happened even since. And if Prince Harry told his story and it was correctly told, meaning he shared his life experience, he didn't just say, I have anxiety. He said, I lost my mother. By losing my mother, it may cause me to feel this way. I, I kept these thoughts in my head. And therefore, I, let, I, I started to develop these feelings. And then that brought me to therapy, which is making me better. 
you couldn't ask for a better celebrity spokesperson in terms of explaining how life experiences impact us, right? With that being said, you talked about 30-year highs in suicides. Guess what? The UK is at 30 years high in suicides. So what that took me and what that told me was no disrespect to all the individual athletes and celebrities out there who have their large platforms and they call their organizations after their name, right? And, they, and, and they're going to save the world. They're not going to save the world. Let's look at the numbers. There's 7 billion people on this planet. There's 340 million people here in the US. Your platform speaks to 8 million, 20 million, 40 million, 60 million of those people. That's still a very small number, right? Yeah. And, and your messages don't go to all of your followers, right? So the only way to actually create change is to hold hands with people and build alliances and talk the same message. So the concept of same here alliances was let's build a celebrity alliance, right? With the Theo Fleury's and the Chimico Holtz Claws and the Keith Bullock's and the Hayden Hurst and the Robin Lerner's. That's one piece of it. Yep. They share their stories. They share their picture. Let's build a practitioner alliance of integrative practitioners from all around the world again, not just the U.S., who understand how to get to the source, who understand that biology changes in the body when we live through these difficult experiences and aren't just pushing pills all the time. Let's create an alliance of everyday heroes where people every day can share their story. And it doesn't have to be a celebrity, but off the heels of celebrities sharing their stories, you feel like a hero because you're putting your, your story out there just like these big, big, big names did on a similar platform, right? CEOs, allowing CEOs to share their stories and talk about how they're going to champion mental wellness in their offices, right? So I'm just giving kind of a, a, you know, a snapshot of it. But if you come to the site, you see Same Here Alliances is the first button that's on the homepage. It breaks down each of those different areas because what we're trying to build and, and look, you know, not that we're not that anyone can ever get to the point of where Amazon is in terms of e-commerce. Yeah. But what we're trying to build is think of that model. How long did it take a Jeff Bezos to plant the seeds of distributor, 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 manufacturer, 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 shipper, shipper, shipper to get all these things together so that now Amazon, you look at it and you say, wow, you hit a button and you get whatever product you want. That didn't happen overnight, right? That happened by planting seeds in all of these places and building these relationships. The goal of same here, still being in its infancy stages, less than three years in, is you're getting the celebrities, you're getting the doctors, you're getting the everyday people, you're getting the CEOs, you're getting these people from all different areas of society. The more they become familiar with this concept of we all face challenges, the more you're planting these seeds. And if you look at same here from a 30,000 foot view from a plane, okay, little trees that you're planting, you can't really see from that high up. Then the second those trees start to grow more and start to come closer and closer together, now you're seeing a same here forest. And now what you're seeing is you're going to be able to see across that, holy shit, this mental health thing is all of us. It's not this one tragedy story and this one ridiculous story and that one ridiculous story. So it, it goes to your previous question, which is we're fighting an uphill battle of the media not wanting this to be the narrative. The pharmaceutical companies not wanting this to be the narrative. The media wants it to be the train wrecks. Big Pharma wants it to be that there's one in five people, and that's an easy number to understand. And there's a thick line that when you're sick, you take medication, and that's the only way to get better. We're saying everyone's fucked up in their own way. Everyone's dealing with shit. Let's come together and work on this. 
I'm not bashing medication as one of the possible tools for symptom management. But what I am saying is the current model is actually making us worse. That's why our suicide numbers have gone up, unfortunately. Man. And I tell you this, um, you know, both of us being athletes working in this space, um, one thing is true, Eric, you cannot replace hard work. Nothing can replace it. And um, I think that, you know, bleeds over into this subject as well. If, if you want to get somewhere, Rome wasn't built in a day. You have to plant the seeds. You have to do the breathing exercises, as monotonous as that may be. Um, you have to learn how to, to talk positively to yourself, right? One of the, it's amazing that we let people you know, we would never let people talk as bad to us as we do to ourselves, right? So these are trained, learned thoughts and behaviors that, you know, are are digestible and they're attainable. And I think that was the coolest thing for me. You know, my coach and accountability partners um, is actually my uncle, Steve Noodleberg, my, my cousin, Mark, and, and they talk about compounding, right? And so it's like this idea of you get one small win and you compound another small win. Before you know it, you've built a Jenga tower that's pretty damn tall. And, and that works for sales in a pipeline and that works for mental health and the way, you know, all the facets that go into it. And so, um, man, I couldn't tell you that I, I am more appreciative of your time now than ever. Um, as we wrap up here, um, you know, we have one question that's sort of been a through line for everybody, uh, you know, all the guests that have come through. And so I, I'm excited to hear your answer. But Eric, if you could tell the guest, um, you know, one thing you've done in your life that you would recommend they do or experience in theirs, what would that be and why? One thing that I have done in terms of something that's, that I've proactively chosen to do as opposed to that's happened to me, any life event, um, whether it was, you know, sought out or it happened to you? Um, you know, I, it's interesting because Theo calls it sitting in your shit, right? Which is not a pleasant term. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll go back to like when things are going well or when you find something that you enjoy or you get that job right out of college that you were hoping for or you transition to another position that you're hoping for you stay nose down in what you're doing. So even with what you're talking about with hard work, hard work is certainly important. But when hard work takes you away from saying, what has gone on in my life and how do I sit in that stuff and how do I untangle it and deal with it? Um, if I could you know, talk to, you know, the question always like, if you could talk to your, your earlier self, it would yeah, be sure. to understand. So, so, so what I ended up having to do was I had to get into that stuff that I had dealt with with my brother and with my friends. And I didn't know that I had to, right? So, so that's what I would say is my advice to people is this stuff is not going away. Whatever you dealt with growing up, as simple as it could have been, you could have been broken up with your, with your sixth grade boyfriend or girlfriend. And you don't think that that's that big a deal, but that crushed you at the time. That's your shit that you got to sit with and deal with and work out and do the yogas, do the breathing practices, do the meditations to work that stuff out of your system. Because if not, that stuff follows you and eventually takes you down. Wow. I got nothing to say behind that, except this has been one of the best hours I've spent in my professional career. Um, thank you. Um, so, so for all you listeners out there, um, I am highly encouraging that you follow Eric and the same here movement. Um, Eric, if you want to go ahead and let them know um, what channels you're on, how to get in touch with you, and then we'll post everything behind this as well. 
Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, so it's pretty simple stuff. So pretty consistent. The the website is samehereglobal.org. Um, then you've got Instagram and Twitter, which is what you see up on the screen at same here underscore global. Um, the my my LinkedIn, which you know I kept as a personal account because it seems to be people want to connect personally. So it's just Eric Hewson. And then the only other funny one, which is our largest audience, is Facebook. We never change it away from we're all a little crazy so people can find us there. It's the only one where it's different than the others. And I guess because there's a quirkiness of Facebook, like 60,000 people out of nowhere, just like, you know, we didn't spend a dollar to get those people, but they're jumping on board and they see it as like a grassroots movement, I guess, in a way. So it's fun to be able to interact in a, in a crowd like that, where people are like, count me in as part of this group. Like, this is not a stigma thing for me. This is me understanding that we're all in this together. I love it. It's it's time that we start embracing ourselves. And as soon as we start doing that, then our output into society is only going to be elevated. So um, Eric from Check and Checkpoint, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Um, and for all you listeners out there, this is a real episode to check yourself. <laughs>